You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. Axe Church Northwest is located in Vancouver, Washington. We meet each Sunday with two services, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Want to know more about us? You can check us out online at www.axecamus.org. Okay, here's the sermon. We hope God blesses you through it. What do we want from life? And how do we get it? What do we want from life and how do we get it? Well, that depends on the answer you give to a couple of questions. Question one, what is life? Is it the zero to 120 years that a human might spend on this planet? Or is it something more than that? For for a Christ follower, we know, we believe, we understand, we know in our hearts that life is eternal. It is much more than 80 or 90 or even 120 years that these physical bodies keep going if they happen to go that long. Uh, In in John, uh, this is a verse that a lot of you may know, John 3, 16, and we'll read 17 also. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 10, 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. For the Christ follower, life is forever. How many people have a really difficult time with that? How many people have a really difficult time thinking about even a few years from now? How many people have a difficult time based on the decisions we see them make thinking about even tomorrow or even a few hours from now? If you want an example of this, just drive around and go by, say, a McDonald's and look in the drive-thru. And the people that you see in that drive-thru ordering those double quarter pounders are not even able to think about what their body is going to feel like an hour from now, let alone what might happen tomorrow or shovel, trust me, this is an experiment that I've done many times. And I can tell you, it is never worth it. It is never worth it. My buddy used to go, when we were in law school, he called McDonald's choke and puke, um, which, you know, I think it tastes pretty good. But it's, you know, you know it's, you're gonna be on the toilet for a while. So that's just, you know, welcome to church. Just thought I'd let you know that. Um, <laughs> but as believers, as believers, we're called to be aware of who we are and what God has planned for us. When we live in truth, when we consider the greatness and the gloriousness of the life that we have been given, our perspective changes. When we understand that we are eternal, our perspective changes. And what we want from life changes, and how we get it changes. If you listen to the world, if you listen to kind of our cultural moments, what you will find the world saying very loudly is that what we want out of life is money, sex, and power. Not necessarily in that order, depending on who you're talking to. But those seem to be the things. Watch television, watch the news, whatever happens to be. Those are the things that we say we want. Now, there have always been people who have said, you know, money's not everything. The best things in life are free and whatever. And we listen to those people and we go, yeah, that's... 
that's right, that's right. And then we go buy 50 lottery tickets, right? Because we don't really live oftentimes like we believe that those things aren't important. We live, if we look at our decisions in life, in our culture, we live like we are after money, sex, power, security, things like that from the world. That's what we seem to be all about. People chase after the things that they think will make life worth living, that they think will make their life good, right? They believe that the answer to the question, what do we want out of life and how do we get it, is answered by the things that culture keeps telling us it's answered by. But even if you only lived 120 years, like let's say you got the whole 120 out of it, right? Which is about as old as the oldest people that we know of that have lived. Even if you do that, and then you just take the dirt nap and you're, you're gone. You don't know anything else. It's over at that point. Even in that case, getting more money, more sex, more power, whatever it is, even that's still not going to give you what you want from life. And certainly, if you are eternal, those things will not give you what you actually want from life. Because what is it that we're really seeking? I can sum it up in one word. Joy. We are seeking joy. And joy is, is, is a complicated word. We, a lot of times we think of it just kind of like happiness, right? But that's not what joy is. Joy is something so much more than that. We spoke about it, we're saying about it today, right? Joy to the world, unspeakable joy. Joy is, it's an experience, it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a mindset, it's an emotion. It's, it can be all of those things, it can be any of those things, and it's actually a lot more than just that. It's so much deeper than happiness, it's so much more enduring than things like happiness. It's beauty and hope and peace and, and comfort and happiness and health and depth and, and all of these things. Joy is the news to the would-be mother that that child she wanted her whole life, she's now pregnant with. And it's also the first moment that she lays eyes on that child after it's born and holds that child. Joy is in all of that. Joy is, is the anticipation of that family vacation that you've been looking forward to. It's also the, the, the experience of the vacation when you're on it. Those things are joy. It's the news that you've been accepted to that college that you really wanted to go to. And it's also that moment when you walk across the stage and get that degree that you've earned. It's the good news that Jesus was born. It's the good news of his resurrection, his death on the cross for our sins. And it's the promise and the hope of his return and the majesty of his eternal presence. All of those things are joy. It's something we have in one another and in God, our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's something we have in that. There's something really interesting about joy. Joy is hope kindled and hope fulfilled. There's something about that that's connected to joy. If you do a search on like BibleGateway.com or whatever software or, or website that you use to study scripture, if you go in there, you just type in joy and look at all the places where, it, where it's talked about in the New Testament. It's talked about a lot and it's talked about a lot of the Old Testament. But if you look in the New Testament, what you're going to find is that we see joy in a lot of places. We see it at the announcement of Christ's birth, right? Joy to the world. I right? bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, that the one who's born is the Savior, Right? Christ the Lord. That's, that's joy, that we know that the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, was born. We find joy in the fellowship of Christ followers. 
because they're partners, brothers and sisters in the promise of redemption, restoration, resurrection. Right? You see Paul writing in these letters and he says, look, you, when he's writing to the church, you are my joy. I want to come and be with you and experience joy with you because we're partners together in this great thing, in this great hope that we have, both a promise of it, hope kindled, and that we will see it given to us, that we will see hope done, that we will see it happen. In all of that, there's joy. We find joy even in trials that we suffer because with them becomes a promise, a hope of growth and rewards in eternal life. We find joy in the promise of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ's return and that all things will be made new in his coming fulfilled kingdom, right? Joy and and hope kindled, joy and hope fulfilled. And joy is commanded to be a fundamental part of every Christ follower's life. Commanded to be a fundamental part of every Christ follower's life, to be an essence of the life of a Christ follower. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We have joy in the sufferings because they're part of a hope of a promise, and we have joy when it's revealed. Joy in relationship with God. Joy in relationship with each other. Joy even in the fiery trial and joy in the hope of the future. It was for joy that Jesus Christ gave his life. His joy is in you. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He had joy in that he was going to reconcile us to himself. He's going to reconcile us to God and he was going to have a relationship with us. He was willing to endure suffering because of the hope of the joy that would come. And that is supposed to define who we are, that kind of joy. The question is, how do we live and experience and live out joy in the very essence of our lives? We've been in a series called Right Side Up. It's been a series studying the words of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. We find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Jesus has been showing us what it looks like to live the kingdom life, the life of a disciple of Jesus, the life of a Christ follower. In doing so, Jesus has shown us that the world is upside down. It's just upside down. And he's shown us that the Christ life, the kingdom life, is right side up. And that that's how we are to live. Now we're going to study three teachings of Jesus today. They're found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. So if you you have your Bible, you you can do that. Or if it's on your phone, it'll also be on the screen. As we study this, I want us to think about how the way that we view life, and sometimes the way that we live life, and the things that occupy our minds, and the things that we have our eyes on and our hearts on, sometimes get in the way of or keep us from experiencing and living in the joy that ought to be and is by rights ours. Let's read the passage for today, starting in verse 19, chapter 6 of Matthew. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And finally this, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. We recently studied the scripture, the teachings of Jesus that came before that. And it was a section on giving and praying and fasting and doing that for God to be seen by God and not to be seen by other people, other men to be praised and given honor by these men, but rather that you would do these things in secret that God might see it. And that makes perfect sense for the first part of this passage about not laying up for yourself treasures on earth, but in heaven. Because if you're doing these things in secret so that only God sees them, then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm putting these things into eternity where moth and rust don't destroy, things don't break in and steal, right? And then this passage here is saying the same thing. Don't be looking to other things to fulfill you. Don't be storing up for yourself things, money and so on on earth, but rather be thinking about what's in heaven. So it's a bridge between these two types of teachings we see in that part of the scripture. This goes kind of directly to what you believe. What do you believe? If you're not a Christ follower, you're here this morning, or you're watching this on video or listening to it on our podcast or whatever it is, if you are not a Christ follower, maybe you think there is no eternal life, that you're going to die and that that's going to be the end and you'll remember nothing after that. You just cease to exist. Or maybe you think that if you are, quote, a good person, that you're going to make it into heaven and have eternal life. After all, you're better than fill in the blank, right? You're better than that person, so you're probably going to make it. But that's, that's wishful thinking. And it ignores the weight of the evidence, philosophical evidence, psychological evidence, sociological evidence, scientific evidence, biblical evidence, all of the evidence that God has given us and revealed to us both in Scripture and in nature. There is only one there is only one who has the authority to tell us about eternal life. Only one. And that is the one who rose from the dead and lives eternally. That's Jesus Christ. It's the only one who can actually speak with authority on what's going to happen to you when you finally have your heart stop beating and your body stop working. There's only one who can tell you what that looks like and what that's going to be. And that's Jesus Christ. Why? Because he rose from the dead and nobody else did. There's nobody else who rose from the dead and is still alive. But Jesus Christ did. And Jesus Christ tells us that no one is a, quote, good person. According to scripture, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. How many of us? All of us. Nobody is a, quote, unquote, good person. And what we know from what Christ has revealed to us and what God has shown us in scripture and in nature that you will neither cease to exist nor will you die and go to heaven for being a quote good person. You will either live eternally with God or you will live eternally separated from God. Those are the only two choices. There is not a third way. 
And no one will live eternally with God in heaven unless they have accepted the grace that was paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. For those who have recognized that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will have eternal life in him. For those who refuse to do those things, you will not. It is that simple, and it is a choice that our loving God has given us. That means that you are commanded, Christ follower, commanded by your Lord Jesus Christ to live an eternal life. That means live a life that recognizes that you are living for eternity. That death is just a moment, but, it's not, but, it, but it does nothing to separate you from life that you will be resurrected to a new body, that your spirit, body, soul, and spirit will go on in a resurrected, transformed form to live forever. And if you know that you're going to be living an eternal life, you're probably, if you keep that in your mind, going to desire to invest in eternal things, in eternity, in the kingdom of God. People put all kinds of time and effort, and energy, and money investing in their retirement, right? You've seen the commercials. Prudential, peace of mind, comes with every piece of the rock, right? Not a sponsor. They, they don't give us anything. Um, I just, that's the only one I remember off the top of my head. Uh, you, you, you've seen the, you know, you watch a football game or whatever, and you're going to see three or four different ads about who you should be investing with, right? And you've got your 401k, and people are checking it. You know, some people check it every day. How, what happened to my investment and whatever? And they're super concerned about how much they have put away for retirement, many of whom will never see retirement because they'll die first, and somebody else will get that money. But even those who see retirement probably will only see it for a few years to, at best, a few decades, if you really, you know, have a long time where you don't work. A few decades in comparison to eternity is nothing, and yet there's so much time and effort and energy that goes into it. Or maybe your money just goes away because those investments can go down just like they can go up. Or maybe you get scammed by a couple guys just so they can fix your car, right? (laughs) This is why you come every week, for those of you not laughing right now. You didn't hear the story about me getting scammed, so go back and watch that one. If you want to see some humility from me, that's a good way to see it right? Moth and rust destroy. Moth and rust destroy in this fallen world. They can destroy our investments and all the things we build up for ourselves here on earth. But nothing destroys that which is in eternity. Listen to what we read in the book of James. This is James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is a sin. It is sin. We are not promised tomorrow on this earth. You are not promised tomorrow or even later today on this earth. Any one of us could physically die at any time. Those are the facts. I hope that makes you have a nice day. Uh, (laughs) It could happen, okay? Some of you may not be here tomorrow. That's just the the facts of life. But you know what we are promised? As a Christ follower, we're promised eternity with him. 
We're promised eternity. We're not promised this earth. We're not promised any amount of time on this earth, but we are promised eternity. Now, when I was younger and I, and I kind of walked away from the Lord and I was not living as a Christ follower, I think I was probably thinking something like, eventually, when I get older, I'll start living for Christ. I'll start doing the right thing. Right? But for now, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do my own thing. And when I'm older, old David will take care of the doing the good stuff. Young David's going to do all this other stuff that caused nothing but trouble. Or I think that some people think things like, well, look, I know I should probably tithe, and I will. Older me will do that. Older me will take care of that. Right now I've got this or that thing that I need to buy, or, you know, it's Christmas season or whatever. We'll start next month. We'll start later. You're not promised tomorrow. Well, I'll start investing in eternity later. You know, we think these things. Well, older me will come to church regularly. Older me will do this or that. Older me will read the Bible more. Older me will do whatever. But that's just boasting. You're boasting about your life that you're going to live a certain amount of time when you don't know that you will live to tomorrow. You're just a vapor. We're here and we're gone as far as this, this world is concerned. But we are promised eternity. So maybe we should think about investing in that. Jesus doesn't teach that you have forever to figure things out and you can do it later. We are to invest our lives in eternity, not just because all other investments are temporary and insecure and moth and rust might destroy them, but because our hearts follow our investments. Those are the facts. Our eyes are on, our hearts are on, our minds are on, our investments. If you put all your time and energy and money into hobbies, or vacationing, or addictions, or overworking, or your financial investments, or even your kids. If you put all of your energy into those things, that is where your heart will be. Where else would it be? That's where your thoughts will be. That's where your security will be. That's where you'll find your value. That's where your value will be. If you put your time and energy and money into the kingdom of God, that is where your heart will be. It's simple math. It's simple. That's where your thoughts will be. That's where your security will be. That's where your value will be. Where you put your investment. It's not a complicated passage, but it is incredibly profound. What we do, what we invest in, what we put our time, effort, and energy into is the place that our thoughts and our hearts will be focused on. If you put it all on stuff on this earth, that's where it's focused. If you put it all on heaven and on eternal life, that's where it will be focused. And we are commanded to live that eternal life now. Jesus goes on to talk about a good eye and a bad eye. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? This is a kind of, a, it's, it's not a particularly complicated passage, but I've always sort of been like, what is he talking about? Just so that you know, it has nothing to do with your actual eyes, okay? Those of us who do not wear glasses, don't need corrective lenses, are not better than those of you who do, okay? Well, maybe a little bit better, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's not the point of this passage. It's not talking about real eyes. 
you know, physical eyes. Now, there's, a, there's a pastor in Minnesota named John Piper. Some of you may have heard of him. He's taught on this passage, and I think his understanding of this passage makes good sense. I like it, so we're going to kind of walk through uh, how he makes sense of it. He says, to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to look at another one of Jesus' teachings. And so we're going to read a, a story, a parable from Matthew chapter 20, the same chapter that we're in, that's going to help us get an idea of what he's talking about with this evil eye. Okay? Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages. Beginning with the last the ones that came at the end of the day, to the first, those who came at the beginning of the day. And when those who came, and, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day? But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil? Because I am good. So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Notice what Jesus says to those who complain about the generosity of the landowner. Or is your eye evil because I am good? John Piper writes this, the evil eye is the eye that cannot see the beauty of grace. Cannot see the beauty of grace. It cannot see the brightness of generosity. It cannot see unexpected blessings to others as a precious treasure. It is an eye that is blind to what is truly beautiful and bright and precious and godlike. It is a worldly eye. It sees money and material, material reward as more to be desired than a beautiful display of free, gracious, godlike generosity. Now, when I was in college, I wrote a paper on the epistemology of religious experience. <clears throat> I'm going to read it now. No, I'm not going to read it now. You'd be sleeping <laughs> quick. I know it sounds really exciting. Um, it was a major assignment in one of my upper division philosophy classes, and there were a bunch of assignments that were related to it that we had to do in, in the process of writing this paper. And so uh, one of the assignments was to find a bunch of sources. I think we had to find like 100 and something, but I don't remember exactly the number. I may be over-remembering. Um, but these books and articles and so on, we had to find them, okay, that we were going to use to help us write the research paper. And because I was a good student and I was using my time wisely all the time, I feel like you don't believe me. Um, I began this assignment the night before it was due. So, 
the first thing that I had to do is I had to search for these sources, right? And we did have the internet. It wasn't the internet that we have now that's like super fast and you have any fun. It was a little slower. I was probably on dial-up. You remember that? You know, I did the whole that thing, AOL or whatever. But anyway, I was, I was on the internet and I, and I pulled up the, uh, um, the library and you could search uh, for this stuff. That didn't take very long. You could search for, you know, I had a topic, it was really specific so I could search it and here's all the sources that sort of come up that are related to my topic. So I got that list. But then after that, I had to take these sources and write something about them. Now that took a really long time. I had, to, I had to write something about each one of the sources so the professor could see what my research was about and so on. So I print out the list and then I go through and I read them and I write about the sources. It takes me to about 4 a.m. I'm up really late, right? Finally, I complete the assignment. You know how I feel. You feel good when you complete that assignment. So I head into class the next morning, assignment in hand. I've done it. I'm good to go. And we all turn our assignments into the professor. What I realized is that it seemed that everyone else in the class had just done the first part and done the search for their sources and printed out that list and just turned it in. And I was like, why, why did they do that when I spent all these hours taking me to 4 a.m. to do that, right? I, I didn't understand why they did that. They were all, you know, watching Seinfeld. Here's an idea of the time frame of when this happened. And getting a good night's sleep. Some young people are like, Seinfeld, what's that? Um, it's on Netflix, I think. Anyway, um, getting a good night's sleep, right? Well, I was working till 4 a.m., so, uh, so that was bad. But what was worse was that the professor did not seem to care. He was going to give all the people who turned in the assignment the same score. They were all going to get credit for turning it in, and even though the other people didn't do much, and I had done all this work. Not happy, but because... I am a gracious person, and I'm always happy to do tons and tons of work and get the same amount of credit as people who did almost nothing. That's something that I'm happy to do, so I didn't say anything. It's not true. I did say something. I said, Professor, what is up with this? You told us the assignment was supposed to be done this way, and you were letting all these people skate by with this nonsense that didn't take them very much time at all. Now, I admit I felt kind of bad for calling everyone else out in my class, but I was unhappy, to say the least. And I think the professor says, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. You all were supposed to do it like David did, but whatever. And I think he still gave them all credit for the assignment and let them all pass. Now, this is somewhat different than the story that Jesus tells here about the landowner, mostly because it's about me and I don't want to think of myself as a person with the evil eye. So it's not that different. It's not that different. The professor, in my case, gave some grace, gave some grace to people. And instead of having joy for my colleagues who were getting a break, by the way, I needed lots of breaks when I was in college and got lots of breaks and lots of grace. But instead of being happy for them who were getting grace, I was upset that it wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. And make no mistake, it wasn't fair. It was grace. It was grace. He was kind to them. It was a gift to a bunch of people who needed a gift. The truth is, it made no difference to me, right? Because I was promised by the professor that if I did this assignment according to the rules and the way it was supposed to be done, and I turned it in on time, that I would get credit for it. And I did this assignment the way it was supposed to be done, and I turned it in on time, and I got credit for it. So what did I have to complain about? What business is it of mine what he does with the other students? It's none of my business. I got what he promised I would get. Why is it my business to worry about him helping my colleagues out? But we struggle with these things sometimes. 
One of the things that I've been working on in my life, one of the things that I'm really bummed out about, about my own character and about my own uh, sin, is that sometimes I see other people get blessed, and instead of being happy for them and joy for them and rejoicing with them, I'm annoyed by it. Or I rationalize their blessing. Oh, he just got that promotion because his father's in management at that company. Or why did he buy that car, that new car? Why does he need that? He has all these other financial obligations or he's got whatever it happens to be, right? They're getting something. And instead of, instead of rejoicing their blessing, I act like a little turd, right? That happens. I'm just being honest with you about things that I, that I struggle with. It's an evil eye. That is an evil eye. We should rejoice with people when they succeed or when they're blessed or when they're giving grace. We should not be comparing ourselves to them and what we've got and say, that's not fair. I'm being good. Why don't I have a bigger house or a nicer this or that or a whatever? Right? Oh, I looked on Facebook. These people's kids were nice to them and gave them all things. My kids didn't give me anything. Why are they, yeah, we, how about, hey, that's awesome that their kids were like that. Yeah, my kids are turds. That's just the way that things, I'm kidding. My kids aren't. They love me. They do no wrong ever. That's what every parent of millennials says. Um, kidding. Our relationship with God is our own. It's our own, us and God. He will work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He promises that. He promises that. What is it to you or to me whether God decides to bless someone else? Do you know their story? Do you know what they've suffered? What that blessing might mean in their life? Think about this with the vineyard and the, and, and the landowner. The people that had been there till the 11th hour, he comes to me and says, why are you still here? He says, because no one has hired us. A denarius was a day's wage, okay? And you needed your day's wage to do what? Buy the day's bread. Buy the food for your family that they could live on. Right? So, assumedly, these men who were sitting there in the town square having not been hired yet had been concerned all day that they might have to go back to their home and tell their little boys and their little girls and their spouse that they were not going to eat tonight. They were living with that all day. Meanwhile, the guys that got hired right at the beginning of the morning at 6 a.m., they went all day with the security of knowing that at the end of the day they were going to get paid and they were going to be able to feed their family. They were working hard, there's no doubt about that, but they had that security. While these other guys who, yes, they didn't work through the heat of the day, but instead suffered through the whole day, wondering whether or not they're going to have to go home and say, we're not eating tonight, family. So is it such a bad thing that the landowner blesses these who need the day's food just like the guys who worked in the morning? Of course not. And what is it to you? He gave you what he said he would. Peter had a, a moment kind of like this. Jesus had risen from the dead. They're talking, Jesus and Peter. And Jesus basically tells Peter how he's going to die. He's going to die in order to glorify God. He's going to serve God and then he's going to die, right? Not always the best news. Like, by the way, you're going to get killed. So enjoy that. It's not today. I'm not going to tell you when, but it's going to happen, right? So here's Peter and he hears that. And his reaction is this. He looks back and he sees John, the disciple John, and he has a thought to himself. John is known as the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's known as the disciple that Jesus loved because he wrote the book of John and calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. So that's the only place where you find the disciple that Jesus loved is in the book of John that he wrote about you know, himself. So 
Peter looks back at the disciple that Jesus loved, right? And he's wondering if John is also going to have to die in this way. So this is what happens. We're in John chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. It says this, Peter seeing him, that's John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus wasn't saying that John wasn't going to die. He wasn't even commenting on that, whether he'd die or not die. Jesus was telling Peter, it's none of your business. None ya. Your business is to follow me. Period. That's it. That's what you need to be concerned about. You follow me. If you are ever tempted to have an evil eye, to look on the blessings of others, and be envious or annoyed, or to say the most ridiculous words that a saved sinner could ever say. That's not fair. That's not fair. If that's the moment that you have, just remember the words of Jesus. What is that to you? You follow me. Doesn't God have the right to bless whoever he wants, whenever he wants? Aren't we glad that he can and that he does? We will be full of light if our eye is good and full of darkness if it is bad. I can tell you that not being able to rejoice with others in their successes, in the grace that's given to them, in the blessings that they get, it's dark. It's not light. It's not going to lead you into good and pure and holy thoughts. It's going to lead you into bitterness and envy and all kinds of things that are just going to make your day terrible instead of making your day great and rejoicing for them. This is massively important. Because it goes right down to the most vital truth in our lives. We are saved only by the grace of God. It is not our own works so that we have nothing to boast about. It is by his grace. It was the undeserved, glorious grace of God. And he paid for that grace with his own life on the cross died and rose again for us. And here's the deal. We're not even the workers who worked for an hour at the end of the day. We're not even those guys who at least deserve something. We deserved nothing. The wages of our sin was death. That's the wages that we earned. And instead of giving us our wages, we got his grace. We deserve death and hell and separation from God, and we got his grace. We got all of it. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. And finally, God tells us that we cannot serve two masters. We will either love the one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve God and money. Serving money is like serving anything. You serve money if you are bound to it. If you're bound to it. If you want to know if you are, ask yourself this. How much do you think about money? How much do you worry about money? How would you react if you lost all your money? For me, this is not an issue. I have all the money I will ever need as long as I die by 5 o'clock today. <laughs> I stole that from somebody yesterday. I don't know who. I wouldn't make it to five o'clock. So, 
seriously though, how would you react if you lost your job or you lost your home or you went bankrupt? How would you react to that? The honest answer to those questions will tell you whether you surf money. Would your world be completely upended? Would the apple car be completely upset? Would you be in despair? Horrified? Does it give you chills just to think about it? If so, you may be serving money. If all your money, all your possessions, your job, your car, if all those things were gone, what would happen? Would you die? Unlikely. Certainly unlikely in this country. Would anyone love you any less? No. And if they did, they weren't loving you. It was your money that they loved in the first place. Remember the prodigal son goes out and, and takes, his, his, takes the money from Pops and he goes out and he just spends it all on prodigal living. And I won't describe for you what prodigal living is because we have the Ager children in here today and they don't want to know about that. But it's not good, okay? And he has all these friends when he can party. But as soon as he runs out of money, he also runs out of friends. Right? There are people like that, so maybe you'd lose them. But the people who love you, the people in this room, people who love Jesus, the people who love you, would not love you one iota less if you had no money. Whatever an iota is. I don't even know what an iota is. But they wouldn't love you even one of those less, okay? Would God love you any less? No. Would you be taken care of? Yes. We'll study more about that in the next section of Scripture, Lord willing. What are we chasing? What are we chasing when we serve money? Here's an easy way to figure it out. If I were only wealthier, then I would fill in the blank, right? Go on more vacations, work less, have nicer things, have more respect from people. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think we think we would have if we had more money. Tithe more. That one's actually okay. You can, it's okay to think that. Although I, I, I have thought in the past, Lord, if you just gave me more money, I would be able to give more money, right? So that 10% gets a lot bigger on a million dollars than it does on $10, right? And so don't do that. Don't negotiate with God about it. If you just give me the 20 million, I'll up the tithe to 15%, right? God can take care of his church, right? God can take care of his church. Having more money is not necessarily going to do anything for you. Maybe, maybe you worry less about the bills. Well, maybe you shouldn't be worrying so much about them to begin with. Again, the next section that we go into, Lord willing, we'll talk about that. Maybe you need money to feel more secure. If you need money to feel secure, if you do not feel secure without enough money, then you know where your security is. It's not in God, it's in money. Knowing that, fix it. Now put your security where it's supposed to be, in Christ, and you won't worry nearly as much about money, and you won't get caught serving it. We serve God. We serve God, not money and wealth and riches. If you serve God, you will have all that you will ever need. If you serve money, you will never have enough. If you don't believe me, find anybody that serves money and ask them when enough is enough. It never is. Here's the thing. What we seek is joy. Joy. We have joy when we live for and in and about eternity. 
We destroy our own joy when we get caught up with the things of this world and the chasing of money and our fair share and who's better than who and all of those kinds of things. All that nonsense robs us of our joy. God is good. He provides for us. He loves us. He gives us grace. If we look to Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we trust Jesus, if we live for Jesus, we will live in joy, period. It will happen. If you are living, thinking about eternity, thinking about Jesus, living for him and not being caught up in all that nonsense, I'm telling you right now, there is no way you could live except joyfully. It's all a question of where our eyes are where our thoughts are, where our hearts are. If they're in eternity, if they're thinking about the fact that we are living an eternal life, if they're thinking about the fact that God has promised to provide for us, if they're not concerned with what others think about us nearly so much as they're concerned about what God thinks about us, if, if you're satisfied in him, you're going to have joy. If you won't be satisfied in him and you need to look to the things that you can build up on this earth, I promise you will never have joy. It will never be enough and those things were never designed to bring you joy. Those are gifts. Those are great. You have, you have something nice. You're able to afford more than one outfit. You're doing better than most of the world. You have a car that works most of the time. You're doing better than most of the world. You got a place to live. You got food to eat. You got what you need. Those are all blessings. Those are all great. But what life is about is our relationship with God and people. Those things are eternal. What will you have forever? Let me tell you really clearly one thing I can guarantee you. What you will have forever, Christ follower, is a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with every other Christ follower. Those things will last forever. What you will not have forever is whatever you're driving right now. Some of you are like, good. <laughs> Praise Jesus. <laughs> Tired of that thing. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Let's end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. If you read history... You will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Thanks for listening to that Acts Church sermon. We hope God spoke to you through it. We would like to invite you to join us in person on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. for our Sunday service. If you enjoyed this sermon, have questions for us, or simply want to connect with Axe Church more, find us on Facebook under Axe Church Northwest. Send us an email or message, or leave us a rating or recommendation. We appreciate all of you and hope to hear from you.